Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend. And it is hard to believe that um, in two days from now uh, we'll be at the very end of July and and in the midst of uh, beginning a new month. I don't know where July has gone, but it has gone by very fast. And it is hard to believe that it was uh, three weeks ago, this this um, three Saturdays ago, I should say, that my wife and I were coming home from vacation. Seems like it was uh, much longer, um, or much um, a lot longer than uh, three weeks ago. But that that just tells you right there how quick uh, time moves. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'm glad to be back on the air as we are uh, about to embark here on another uh, podcast segment episode to uh, Men of Patriotism, Courage, and Enterprise, uh, Fort Meigs in the War of 1812. Now, uh, I do recall from where we left off on the uh, last um, episode how uh, Colonel um, William Dudley was able to uh, go about um, surprising um, British... um, troops um, within the uh, confines of uh, Fort Miami, and he was able to do it in the midst of uh, inclement weather. And as we all know, uh, weather can either make or break. Weather can, e- weather can either uh, ruin um, one side's means of achieving their ultimate uh, quest, or it can um, spare the other side from from uh, annihilation, it can spare them from from uh, being uh, caught off guard. Um, it could spare them uh, from just about anything to where they still have a chance, uh, a chance for for it to have another day's uh, fight. It could spare them um, the chance of uh, not um, coming into anything unexpected, to where more men are lost, to where an army doesn't even um, exist or an army is on the brink of collapsing. So, yes, this um, surprise attack that uh, Colonel William Dudley uh, was able to um, embark upon in in catching uh, British troops off guard where they were able to raise uh, loud, their version of loud Indian yells, um, or I should say um, war or rally cries, to uh, charging the batteries and uh, routing the gun crewmen and rupturing 11 cannon to cutting down British flag colors, all of this being done without losing any um, troops whatsoever. I mean, to me, that was uh, remarkable. Uh, the chances, let alone of, of uh, coming away without the loss of life, to me, that would be like one in a hundred and knowing that, for knowing that for one, it's raining outside, but two, that your rifles or or I should say muskets. I think it'd be fair to say that most of the troops had muskets versus rifles. That's just me, but your um, muskets or rifles, whatever you have on you, is uh, saturated with water. And Colonel Dudley was smart enough to tell his troops, "Look, what can be done." Instead, is um, having bayonets. In other words, fix your bayonets, or we must fix our bayonets now, because when we, if we fix our bayonets, having them ready to go, then yes, we can uh, inflict some method of terror. 
we can inflict some kind of fear into the opposition to where if, if we catch them unnoticed, we can advance and we can do just about anything. So it does pay to have an alternative plan of attack when weather sets in. Just think if Colonel uh, William Dudley, uh, if his troops did not have uh, bayonets on them, then this, then this uh, planned attack would have probably been a much different story, especially in the midst of inclement weather. So going forward, we have to wonder, will Colonel William Dudley have any more momentum on his side, or will he be dealt a setback? Uh, we will also find out in this uh, podcast segment episode as to uh, whether or not um, it's not so much a question of whether or not Colonel William Dudley would um, have success, but um, but a dilemma that he will eventually encounter. I'm not trying to give anything away, but a dilemma that he could uh, soon encounter that um, that will uh, lead to some very hard choices. It's one thing to have momentum, but, you know, momentum doesn't always last forever. Another thing that we will be discussing about is um, is uh, how um, one side treats the other when it comes to um, prisoners of war. Uh, that's something that um, has not always been a, um, a pleasant thing to talk about, regardless of what side you're on. But it is fair to say that um, how uh, the pri- how prisoners were treated is something that uh, cannot go unnoticed, and uh, and it does need to be discussed because this is a side of war that sometimes can often get overlooked. But it's also a reminder of um, of what happens when you end up uh, being on the uh, losing side. It's one thing to win; it's another thing to uh, catch the uh, opposition off guard to where you end up um, capturing the oppo- uh, capturing a fair number of um, of uh, soldiers from the opposition side, but how you treat them is a whole other uh, thing, and we just need to be reminded of the fact that uh, oftentimes when um, people from one side were captured by the other, that didn't mean that. Um, their living conditions as prisoners were um, were uh, what we what we might think of as uh, safe or secure. Uh, in other words, uh, I think it's fair to say that in this podcast se- segment episode, there are some things that we need to be reminded about that uh, should not be uh, taken for granted. So, let's go ahead and begin with our uh, leadoff question here. Did signs of peril, or in other words, uh, did signs of danger? appear around Fort Miami shortly after Colonel William Dudley's troops had achieved major success, or I should say, having achieved a major feat. Do you think any signs of peril, or or I should say danger, would have appeared around Fort Miami shortly after Colonel uh, William Dudley's troops had achieved um, major um, or unprecedented success? Believe it or not, the answer is yes. Uh, Major James uh, Shelby's center or central wing came upon an Indian party per the spot that was lying in between uh, damaged artillery 
including that of Fort Miami, which led to their being unaware of instructions regarding uh, retreat procedures back to the Maumee River. Okay, folks, remember, no walkie-talkies, no cell phones, no text alerts. Um, <laughs> you know, it is easy to forget about um, the instructions. It is easy to forget um, that sometimes um, information doesn't get relayed to everybody, not only just right away, but or just let alone in general, information sometimes does not always get uh, shared with everyone. It might get shared within an inner circle, but sometimes it does not get shared with uh, with everyone, even those outside of the uh, elite inner circle. Uh, a skirmisher, or a skirmish, <laughs> or an unintended uh, fight, that's another um, example of uh, what skirmish is all about, being an unintended fight, broke out where um, the Kentucky group pressed onward with the advancement led by uh, Colonel William Dudley. Now, it's one thing to advance in the midst of a skirmish or an um, unintended fight, but there can be consequences for going uh, forward, especially if you haven't been given authorization from above. Say, in this case, did General William Henry Harrison... Did he tell you, being Colonel William Dudley, to go forward with any means of advancement should you uh, come upon um, acts of uh, hostilities that are more so uh, skirmish-like? So Colonel Dudley has two choices before him. Number one, he can follow Harrison's orders and retreat with his forces back across the Maumee River, or secondly assemble his troops, and come to Major James Shelby's assistance. Well, the, this is a big dilemma for Colonel William Dudley. If he were to retreat with his forces back across the Maumee River, there's, there's a very good likelihood that his troops could, um, all of them, could return back safe and perhaps avoid um, being... Um, detected by the enemy to where there could be um, skirmishes or to where there could be um, any kind of um, activity going on where potential loss of life can happen and uh, numbers are not only just decimated but you also run the risk of um, having um, soldiers becoming uh, prisoners of war or would it be appropriate for um, for Colonel William Dudley to uh, come to the assistance of another officer and his uh, men. In other words, what would happen if I turned my back on a fellow officer and his men who might be in danger? Yes, they might not be aware that they are to retreat. And in this case, obviously, Major James Shelby's uh, center wing uh, was unaware of the instructions regarding um, retreat um, procedures back to the Maumee River. So, yes, Colonel William Dudley is very concerned about Major um, James Shelby's, um, not, not just so much his whereabouts, but the safety of his, of his own uh, men. I would be too, but um, in the end, Colonel Dudley went with option two. So, in other words, he's going to assemble his um, 
his nearly 800-man force and come in, that will come to the uh, assistance of Major James uh, Shelby. It's like that old saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So in other words, yes, you could get in trouble for um, not following the general's orders, or yes, you could um, perform some act of heroism and come to the aid of a fellow um, officer and his men. In other words, you might not, this could be a good example here of where you're not burning a bridge. Either way, um, he, he, this could either work to uh, Colonel William Dudley's advantage or, or it could backfire on him. So how did uh, British and Indian forces respond to the advancing American wings? Okay, the advancing American wings being that of um, Colonel William Dudley's uh, forces. They engaged the Kentucky troops briefly. Okay, so they engaged them briefly. That doesn't mean a um, traditional uh, battle where the officers are going to say, uh, men, present your arms, make ready, take aim, fire. No, they're not going to do that. But what they're, obviously, to me, what this sounds like by, in terms of engaging the Kentucky troops briefly is that they are engaging in some form of irregular-style fighting where they are going to fire at the enemy, and then they're going to fall back. And by falling back, their objective would be to lure the Americans onward, okay? While we're falling back, we're going to see to it that they keep that they come onward. And by coming onward, we might be able to knock down more of their men to where they enter uh, panic mode, and then their retreat is not... Um, it, it's a chaotic one to where um, men become... Um, how you call it? Men become... Um, unstable men become um i don't know if i say uncivilized is the right word but they basically are um there uh there's a breakdown in discipline a breakdown in morale a breakdown in just about anything that could happen so yes the uh, british and indian forces are engaging the kentucky troops briefly but they went about falling back only to move forward once again so they're not going to stay on the run they, i mean they're going to move back but as the Americans come forward, then the British and the Indians will move forward again with another uh, surprise uh, attack, that being that of irregular, basically knocking them down, going back, coming forward, knocking them down again, to where they can wear down uh, Colonel Dudley's army within a short period of time. As American troops pressed onward with their advancing charges, they became all the more vulnerable, given the proximity to Fort Meigs is now further away. General Harrison, overlooking from Fort Meigs's north slope, spotted Colonel Dudley and his troops, knowing they were in danger. He yelled, shout, or I should say shouted as, at the top of his lungs as best as he could. By, uh, he shouted at Colonel Dudley to retreat. Uh, but, of course, General Harrison doesn't have a megaphone, but probably the, the, at the level he's shouting, it would be the closest thing to using a megaphone. But Colonel Dudley didn't um, hear the response. So Harrison went as far as offering a reward up to $1,000 for anyone willing to navigate the Maumee River crossing 
and advised Colonel Dudley and his troops to return immediately. A fellow by the name of a Lieutenant Campbell attempted the river crossing but was unable to prevail given how strong the river's uh, current, or I should say direction, was moving. The American attack on Fort Miami lasted three hours, but the escape route was halted because of heavy rain. There again, rain or inclement weather can make or break the success of an army or even the army as a whole. Uh, what became of the Kentucky troops whom advanced further into the woods in pursuit of British and Indian forces? For starters, whatever success they had earlier suddenly turned to concern via entering into uncharted territory, followed by panic. And what I mean by uh, followed by panic, how about um, the enemy launching a counterattack resulting in a chaotic retreat only to be met with a massive rout. Man. You know, whatever success you had, now all of a sudden it's become a complete 360, an opposite, something unimaginable. I'm beginning to wonder if Colonel William Dudley, to me, Colonel William Dudley had no business whatsoever launching this, um, well, Yes, he was very successful in what he did early on. But to get caught up in the excitement, in the moment, now realizing that, well, yes, we may have seized the, um, the day by, um, by piercing 11 cannon, by, um, by uh, taking down the British color flags. We, could, we did all this, but now it doesn't mean anything. And Colonel William Dudley's attempt in saving his rank, meaning his status, not only failed, you know, given that he was trying to help Major Isaac um, Shelby's, um, he was come, he's, he was trying to come to Major Isaac Shelby's um, assistance. Not only did um, saving his rank fail, but it also resulted in losing his life. Colonel William Dudley is dead, folks. He died in the midst of that um, of the uh, British and Indian um, uh, surprise attack, or that you know what we think of as irregular uh, warfare um, fighting style. Not only did uh, Colonel William Dudley lose his life, but it also included the death of Major Morrison and fifty of his men under him. Out of the eight hundred soldiers under his command, do you want to know? If Folks, how many of uh, Colonel Dudley's uh, men were captured as well as um, having been killed? 650, folks. 650 men were either captured or killed. That means, folks, only 150 soldiers made it back to Fort Meigs. I did the math. 650 into 800, folks. 81%. 81%, folks, is the percentage of soldiers that were captured and killed per chasing the enemy in the woods. You know, just because the enemy retreats into the woods, it doesn't mean that it's safe for you to go. Let them retreat. You've already captured the day, or you've already seized the day. You've already pierced just shy of a dozen cannon. You've... Uh, 
you've taken down the enemy's um, flag colors. You've you basically you've, you've caught them off guard to a point where they are in retreat mode. You don't need to go after them. If you want to go after them, that's one thing, but there's no guarantee they'll, that you'll come out of the woods alive. And I think it's fair to say that there should have been some indication even before this um, attack happened or let alone this uh, maneuver happened that, hey, we can't make any assumptions that that that, that when we go into the woods that we could be, um, we can't make an assumption that, oh, nothing will stop us. Oh, believe me, there is always something lurking in the woods that will come back and get you one way or another. So, 81% being the percentage of soldiers captured and killed per chasing uh, British troops and in Indian warriors into the woods. Now, this is, now folks, this is where things get really uh, intense. And what I mean by intense is uh, treatment. Can you imagine now if you are um, an American troop who was not killed, but say was wounded or just, you know, captured. Now you have become a prisoner, a prisoner of war. What exactly did the Indians do to those American troops whom already surrendered to British soldiers? And I'm going to uh, describe some things, folks, and I, it might sound graphic, but I think it is something that we just need to be reminded of, and this did happen. Well, for one, as American troop prisoners were being marched towards Fort Miami, the Indians went about robbing the prisoners of various valuables, including going as far as stripping them of their clothing. Out of nowhere, folks, can you imagine being a prisoner? You have valuables on you, and now all of a sudden... The enemy is just taking stuff out of your coat pocket without your consent. And now it's in their possession. And now they're you know flaunting it, saying, look what we have. We have stuff that belongs to uh, the, these um, American prisoners. And now we'll see to it that they never um, get them back in their possession. And we're just going to strip them of their clothing. Uh, they basically have no rights to us. Yes, I can understand if you're an Indian that you don't like the fact that you are dealing with an invasive um, species, being Europeans. But there is also there ought to also be a code of conduct during a time of war. But given uh, how much encroachment has happened along the Northwest Territory in terms of land acquisitions uh, from the time of the uh, post-Revolutionary War era, just before the time of uh, America's um, new governing uh, document, being the AKA, AKA the Constitution, going into play um, around the time of 1785 when the um, first uh, wave of um, Ohio um, wars uh, began in the o Ohio Territory um, over um, westward... Um, expansion into what we know as Ohio was taking place. Uh, so basically it had been going on for some time. And of course, for the Indians, the, um, the treaties, most notably uh, uh, Greenville in 1795, where they had to cede uh, land in eastern and southern Ohio to the Europeans, or I should say the federal government. So I can see where the Indians are angry, but yet at the same time, there still has to be 
a proper um, code of conduct. Uh, secondly, as prisoners got to the gates of Fort Miami, the Indians established a gauntlet. And what is a gauntlet, folks? It's where, um, in this case, a gauntlet is uh, multiple rows. It's almost like an obstacle course, except it involves people. So in this case, the Indians, having established a gauntlet, they established a gauntlet where the prisoners were forced to run between multiple rows of Indians whom partook in torture, or I should say barbaric tactics from clubbing to tomahawking the Americans. Talk about, you know, there's no such thing as having your rights read to you. I mean, there's no such thing as Miranda rights, where you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and would be used against you in a court of law. Well, of course, <laughs> that doesn't exist. But think about it. No formal rights are read to you. The, you know, where are the, where are the British officers? But we're going to find some more information out here soon about that. I think that's going to blow you away even more. And I also think what's going to blow you away even more is um, how one particular Indian uh, reacts to all of this and his uh, responses towards um, Brit the British officers high up. British officers, including Colonel Proctor, Colonel Henry Proctor, they witnessed the horrors in other words, they saw the clubbing and the tomahawking taking place, but they did not stop the Indians from their uh, brutal tactics. They just sat back and, and watched it all happen. However, one British soldier had had enough of it. He attempted to intervene by seizing an American soldier whom uh, was being treated very inhumanely. This British soldier... It took a lot of guts for him to uh, intervene and say enough is enough. But sadly, folks, this British soldier um, got shot through the heart. An Indian shot him as he was trying to intervene and break up uh, the barbaric uh, savagery. I think uh, had this uh, British uh, soldier lived and not been shot, I think it's fair to say that he should have been awarded what we would know of in today's time as a Purple Heart for his uh, bravery and saving someone's life from the opposite side. In other words, yes, this average Joe uh, British soldier probably didn't mind having Indians as allies, but when it came to the uh, brutal savagery tactics, to him that was unethical, unfair an improper way of uh, conducting um, the rules of engagement in a time of war. Was the prophet Tecumseh present uh, during the midst of the brutality taking place, among, uh, taking place upon American troop prisoners? And I'm sure many of you are beginning to wonder, where, was, where is exactly Tecumseh? Is Tecumseh tolerating this? Well, it turns out, folks, that Tecumseh wasn't physically present while all the uh, brutality uh, against the American prisoners was going on. He did learn from a source on site of what had happened, or I should say what took place. Tecumseh went about returning to Fort Miami immediately. And what do you know? He arrived in the midst of all this barbaric activity going on. He intervened. And by intervening, he was able, 
for one, he demanded that his own fellow peoples or his own fellow men stop what they were doing. And they did stop. But for Tecumseh, it was one thing for his own men to be engaging in this um, style of improper conduct. But the real anger um, had to do with the British officer in command. The ang- Tecumseh's anger has to do more so with the British officer in charge of this expedition being Colonel Henry Proctor. Tecumseh took his anger out on Colonel Proctor, and rightfully so here, by demanding to know why he didn't put an immediate halt to the massacre already unraveling. Proctor responded with the following remark, and this is in quotations, folks. Your Indians cannot be commanded. Well, for starters, um, my response to this, uh, for starters, is that Colonel Proctor didn't appear to show any empathy towards those he perceived as being inferior. While on one hand, uh, the British have promised the Indians from time and from time after time, the British have promised the Indians that if they uh, are on their side, that uh, their people will be looked after. They even promised uh, the Indians that a buffer, that Ohio could have been seen as a, a buffer state. In other words, a state that would have uh, provided full protection for the Indians to where no Europeans could have established um, any means of uh, residency in what we now know as the Buckeye State, a.k.a. Ohio. Yes, British Indian um, agent traders married into Indian families, and while all that was good, it didn't mean that um, perhaps everybody was going to be on the same page, even as uh, war itself would one day break out, knowing that even Britain herself knew that war with the United States was imminent. So it is fair to say that even Colonel Henry Proctor, yes, he may claim to be um, a savior for the Indians in the midst of their um, merciless dealings with the uh, outsiders being that of the uh, U.S. government, but yet even Colonel Proctor, Colonel Proctor could be one of those individuals that... um, falls under the category of so close but so far away. In other words, he may claim to have your side, but that doesn't always automatically mean that he'll have empathy for you all the time when it's um when it's um uh when it's out there. I also found it um I also um realized that um that Colonel Proctor had failed to implement any accountability standards for those peoples, being the Indians, whom had viewed the outsiders, being the United States government, and settlers as invasives that had played havoc on disrupting the native ways of living. So, yes, uh, Colonel Proctor knew that, yes, that the, that the natives were dealing with a never-ending problem of... Um, of the invasives being the U.S. government and the settlers that were moving westward into the Northwest uh, Territory, but yet Colonel Proctor needed to, should have established some form of accountability standards by saying, hey, look, 
if you want to be on our side, fine. But if you um, engage in improper um, tactics or improper conduct during a time of war, not only could your alliance be hampered with us, but if word gets back to Washington about what happened along the frontier, it will only make the government, it will only make the United States government even um, more upset than they already are at this time, given that, you know, that they've lost uh, the Michigan Territory, given that it's in complete control of uh, Britain and the Indians. Well, despite Tecumseh's arrival and putting an end to the barbarism, sadly, folks, 40 American troops were already massacred. Surviving prisoners were sent to British gunboats along the Maumee River, where they lingered within the cargo holds. <laughs> the cargo holds obviously were, were where all the cargo would have been stored, essential provisions. So basically, folks, the prisoners being sent to the cargo holds kind of reminds me of what was going on during the American Revolutionary War, especially up in uh, New York City uh, with that infamous uh, British ship, the HMS Jersey, that uh, housed multiple American uh, prisoners of war. And when prisoners died and those who survived, they were met with the uh, following following, uh, remarks of, um, bring out your dead. In other words, take your dead out, throw them overboard, and make wave make way for new prisoners. The prisoners, I'm sure, even in the War of 1812, under these uh, in these cargo holds, had some very very um, unpleasant conditions. Uh, and for those of you who were with me when we talked about rebels at sea privateering in the American Revolution, we talked about. Um, what it was like to have been a prisoner of war, most most notably um, aboard uh, the aboard the British ships, uh, most notably the HMS Jersey. I'm glad I wasn't alive back then. I mean, I can't imagine being a prisoner, but knowing uh, just how inhumane the conditions were. Uh, yes, you know, some pris- yes prisoners were able to um, go out into the um, markets and purchase things, but that didn't mean that everything was cozy. It might have been nice from the outside, but once they went back inside the confines, that's when the hell resumed again. So we have to wonder um, how many did how many of these prisoners will survive in the cargo holds? How many will not? We don't know, but you just have to wonder. Well, Tecumseh's not through with Colonel Proctor. I can promise you that much. Tecumseh said the following to Colonel Proctor. He's got another... I like how Tecumseh's taking a stand. I mean, yes, Tecumseh does not like the fact that, yes, for one, that many of his Indian brethren are um, are um, straying away from the traditional ways of living, but yet he wants his men, his own people, to be accountable for their actions. Somebody has to take a stand, and I'm glad that Tecumseh is willing to do this. Tecumseh told, uh, said, to, said the following to Colonel Proctor in quotations, in quotation, You are unfit to command. Go and put on petticoats. Uh, the way I um, translated this is the following. Just because someone like Henry Proctor might hold the rank of colonel, it doesn't automatically mean that uh, one in particular has uh, full control over everyone 
below them, as well as an agenda behind what is, behind what is and what isn't appropriate to tolerate. Yes, you may be a colonel. Yes, you may have a nice, distinguished title, but that doesn't mean that everything is perfect. Just because you have a title, you hold power, it doesn't mean that you, um, it doesn't automatically mean that you might respect everyone below you. In this case, Colonel Proctor didn't respect, it wasn't so much that he didn't respect uh, the Americans, uh, the American troops that they were fighting against, but it, but it also meant that he did not care how they were being treated, especially given that he had told uh, Tecumseh earlier that, um, that your Indians cannot be commanded. In other words, Colonel Proctor didn't want to make the effort to discipline them. He didn't want to make the effort to tell them that, hey, look, if you want to be on our side, that's fine, but this is what is appropriate and this is what is not appropriate to to that we're going to tolerate. You know, you, you do have to have rules and guidelines even when there is an alliance. And if you don't, then how can an alliance even exist? So, and then, um, as for the part where um, Tecumseh had said, you know, go and put on petticoats, okay, stay warm while those in anguish, a.k.a. misery, suffer an agonizing fate. Okay, yeah, stay warm, stay comfortable, but what about those whom are suffering? Don't you care about how they, how they are feeling? I guess not. Whereas Colonel Dudley and his troops met with disaster along the Maumee River's north bank, how did Brigadier General Green Clay and his 400-man unit fare after landing safely along the south shore? Well, they drove the Indians out whom were stationed along Fort Miami's western side, but unlike Colonel Dudley's landing, which went unopposed, Brigadier General, G Brigadier General Clay's unit faced opposition amongst Indians while making their way upstream uh, via flatboats. Upon reaching the river bank, Brigadier General uh, Clay and troops got fired upon by Indians along the beach. The American troops responded uh, with a volley, volley where, you know, multiple men fire at once with the intention of knocking, you know, a fair number of um, troops from the opposition side down. Well, in this case, by, fall, by uh, firing with, uh, with a volley, American troops were able to kill one Indian while forcing the others into a retreat. Now I have to wonder... Is Brigadier General Clay going to make the same mistake that Colonel uh, William Dudley did? All right. Did Brigadier General Clay and his 400-man force return to Fort Meigs safely intact? Yes, they did. So they came back to Fort Meigs unlike what Colonel William Dudley's uh, men uh, did. However, um, General Harrison's got a surprise in store for Brigadier General Clay and his 400-man force. Shortly after their return, General Harrison asked that the uh, Kentucky group reform with a small unit from the post and return the same route where they had previously engaged Indian forces. Are they trying to, um, I'm wondering if they're trying to wear them down by engaging in some other surprise irregular style uh, fighting uh, tactics. Well, the American troops did, in fact, engage in their own irregular fighting tactics by luring Indians closer to the stockade. 
aka Fort Meigs, only to push or repel them back twice, resulting in their being further away. Despite repelling the Indians successfully, the cost of implementing uh, these tactical procedures from General Harrison did result in 45 American troops getting wounded, including Brigadier General Clay, whom injured his leg. Seven. Why is the number seven important here? That was the number of men guarding the land, of, of guarding a land craft. That is the boats that were on land. You know, they can't be left unattended because if they're left unattended, then the enemy will get their hands on them. Not only seize them, but maybe burn them. And with the hopes that when the enemy, when the enemy comes back, they can capture all those troops. So, yes, seven being the number of men guarding the land craft, but three of them died. Forty-five, just, just, just under 50 percent, about 45 percent died there. So, yes, this was a um, risky uh, maneuver on the part of uh, General Harrison to have taken, but in my opinion, it was very well worth doing because sometimes you have to do things that are a bit uncommon, and by doing so, yes, it is a risk worth taking, but at the same time, it does pay off in the long run, and I think it did here. Yes, I, I don't know how many British troops were wounded or killed, but by doing this, they were trying to find a way to wear down Colonel Proctor's army. What did uh, Colonel John Miller of the 19th Infantry um, engage in per Harrison's orders? Talk about being far more daring, in my opinion. But Colonel Miller's forces attacked the British position south of Fort Meigs, where despite coming under heavy fire, they managed, they managed to charge British guns by taking the battery, seizing artillery crew to piercing enemy cannons. Wow. To me, uh, these are what I call heroic actions, even in the midst of, of the barrage of enemy firing. To me, this is what separates boys from men. What action did British Colonel Henry Proctor engage in come the early evening of May 5th, 1813. Well, Colonel Proctor sent a message out to, uh, he sent a messenger, rather, I should say, out to Fort Meigs, whom demanded, per the general's request, to surrender Fort Meigs immediately. So, in other words, Colonel Proctor sends out this messenger to Fort Meigs, whom in the messenger is demanding per the general general's request he's demanding that general harrison surrender fort fort meigs immediately Do, is it fair to say general harrison has enough common sense not to fall for uh, colonel proctor's bait yes it it is fair to say that uh, general harrison has enough common sense um, not to fall for this tactic general harrison refused to surrender the fort or I should say Fort Meigs, given his overall troop numbers were strong and casualties within the fort were low. However, General Harrison was willing to compromise regarding prisoner exchanges. Okay, so I, we were really concerned there just a short while ago about what's going to happen to those prisoners uh, who got placed on the, um, 
British uh, ships and were stationed in the cargo holds. May 6, 1813, no fighting took place, despite the presence of white flags. Now, what are white flags, folks? <laughs> They're more than just white flags. In a time of war, white flags are known as truce flags, a.k.a. Uh, flags that represent um, no fighting. There's a temporary halt. So the truce flags became visible per each fort. The agreement involving prisoners centered around regular soldiers, you know, that is the regulars, whom had been uh, captured from the previous day, be uh, mutually exchanged or uh, returned at once. The survivors from Colonel Dudley's unit were to be taken near the entrance of the Huron River around uh, the Michigan Territory, given that's where, uh, you know, of course, Lake Huron, and then you have the Huron River. So, uh, so yes, they would have been sent into what we know as uh, the Michigan Territory. So, yes, uh, Colonel, those whom survived from Colonel Dudley's unit were to be taken near the entrance of the Huron River, where they would be released. And once let go or returned, Colonel Dudley's surviving troops had to agree to the following, not to fight, that is, you are not to take up arms unless exchange, unless an exchange for all British soldiers held as prisoners had already taken place. So in other words, you are not allowed to fight, given that the other side um, still has prisoners that have not been returned to us. Once all the prisoners have been returned per each side, then... Um, fighting can resume. Is it fair to say that they're trying to make sure that the um, that the numbers are fair on each side in terms of fighting? In my opinion, but it's also a, a gentleman's um, way of, um, of abiding by the rules of war, even though, uh, how do I say it? It's just one, it's, it's a gentlemanly way of uh, doing things in a time of war. And this kind of thing even dates back to uh, w during the American Revolutionary War, although it is fair to say that there were instances where uh, prisoners, uh, most notably if you were a prisoner at sea during the American Revolutionary War, um, prisoner exchanges did not happen. And the reason for that was because the British uh, did the following. They, they gave the prisoners uh, two options, uh, not to get off track, but for those of you who are new to my podcasts, I'll tell this to you now. Uh, British officials would tell um, American prisoners, uh, most notably aboard uh, British um, prison warships like HMS Jersey, they would say to the prisoners, um, if you uh, are willing to um, come join our side, you will be forgiven of your treason, you will be forgiven of all your sins. But if you choose not to, um, you will die a traitor's death. And many of those, many if not all of them, um, died a traitor's death. And by doing so, they uh, sac not only lost their lives, but they saved the lives of those whom were still able to carry on the fight in ultimately obtaining um, our uh, political independence from uh, the mightiest empire in the world uh, via... Um, war. So uh, the Indians under Tecumseh's tutelage, or I should say leadership, 
they weren't satisfied. They weren't satisfied largely in part because they were very displeased over where things currently stood given Colonel Proctor's promise of a quick strike on Fort Meigs. It didn't live up to their expectations. And I could see where they have a point. It's, it, they, they almost feel betrayed. They feel lied to in a way. It's like, it, you know, we have all this momentum up in, in Michigan, and we got Michigan, you know, very easily. Now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden we're dealing with a reformed American army that actually can fight. But yet the colonel promised us it would be an easy victory. Hadn't been easy. So uh, even, I found this interesting too, that even uh, Canadian militiamen shared the same views that the Indians had. And not only um, did the Indians leave in numbers, but the Canadian militiamen left in numbers as well. They left not only out of disappointment, but due to their occupation. What do you think their occupation was? Farmers. And by being that of a farmer, many of these militiamen were required to return home as soon as possible to not only plant their crops, but to tend to their own families. You can only be gone but for so long. But now that, um, but now that things aren't looking good, why stay on? So Colonel Proctor is um, facing a huge dilemma from within. It's almost like um, a mutiny of sorts. Uh, what occurred prior to dawn on May the 9th, 1813? Two deserters from the British side made their way across the Maumee River and entered Fort Meigs with the news that majority of enemy cannon were loaded on British gunboats. So just after dawn on May the 9th, confirmation findings were accurate, confirmed to be accurate as American forces spotted British troops loading the last of their supplies to boarding their own men. At 10 a.m., a British flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, departed the Maumee River for Amherstburg, Ontario, resulting in the siege being officially over. At 12 p.m., Cannon firings at Fort Meigs resulted in celebration with a salute multiple times. Multiple times where, Brit where the American troops would have been saying, Huzzah! 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 And why not? 1,700. That's the approximate number of shot and shell that British artillery crewmen fired upon Fort Meigs. 70 to, the number ranged between 70 to 80. That range number pertains to the number of American troops whom were killed at the fort. 189 was the number of Americans wounded. I'm not sure what the exact number was for uh, Colonel uh, Henry Proctor and the British and Indian forces, but, um, but maybe he was um, too embarrassed to um, even want to report his findings. Despite Colonel Proctor's forces having withdrawn back to Amherstburg, did uh, American forces face internal dealings in the midst of victory? Internal dealings, meaning what, what's going on on the inside. Yes, we've, we've uh, prevailed, 
but it doesn't mean that everything is still 100% rosy. It doesn't mean that everything is um, safe and sound. So, yes, there were internal dealings. Uh, they found themselves burying uh, fallen comrades, their own, their own men, from troops to officers, which included Colonel William Dudley, to becoming emotionally drained, resulting in sadness and depression amongst all of those whom survived. You know, yes, you can prevail, you can come away victorious, but what about your fallen? What about the fallen comrades? They died making sacrifices, but they're not here to celebrate. You have to carry on their legacy. And yes, in the midst of triumph and tragedy, but in the midst of both triumph and tragedy, Amer the American army has prevailed amongst a mightier force. We can now finally say, that we have gotten the upper hand, maybe not 100% so much the upper hand, but we have been able to repel the British. We now, we've, we've now been able to prove that we have an army that can stand head to toe with the mightiest empire. On the other hand, uh, our Navy is doing very well. Old Ironsides, AKA USS Constitution has defeated some uh, British ships at sea and now the British are beginning to wonder, hey, we have a mighty navy. Hey, we've impressed their men on the seas. But now all of a sudden they're beating us on the seas. What's going on here? I do know that it's a game of uh, reversal. You have to wonder, though, how long can this reversal last? So uh, this mightier force obviously being uh, the British Army and their Indian allies... Within a week's time after uh, British departure, Fort Meigs underwent necessary repairs, which meant normal practices, procedures of camp life, helped restore order and the meaning to those whom already sacrificed so much, but yet would face more challenges ahead and perhaps just along the Maumee River. Well, folks, uh, We've covered a lot of ground, and um, we have uh, we've learned some things that we probably didn't think could have happened, especially with the prisoners. But it is good to know that um, that a compromise was made with regards to the prisoners. Unfortunately, that does not always happen, but in this case, it did. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, talk about how. Um, both sides move forward and then we also have are going to have to uh, figure out where do things stand going forward with Fort Meigs will Fort Meigs see more action down the road could the British and the Indians decide to launch a second attack on Fort Meigs all of that will be uh, covered in our next uh, podcast segment episode uh, so when I'm back on the air again, I look forward to sharing with you all that information. Thank you for your time as always, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.